Hello and welcome to this episode of Pump Court Family Law Podcast. My name is Tara Lyons and today I'm delighted to be joined by not one, but two members of Chambers, Cordelia Williams and Edward Boydell, who are here today to be talking about the often overlooked topic of adjourning and reviving capital claims. Both Cordelia and Edward are considered stars at the bar. Cordelia has recently been ranked by Legal 500 as a tier one rising star, where she's described as meticulous and having knowledge beyond her years. And Edward Boydell, who we all know has been consistently ranked in the top tiers of both Chambers and Partners and Legal 500, where he's described as a highly impressive advocate and extraordinary. And of course, Edward appeared in the leading case of Hardy and Hardy, which is extremely relevant for today. Well, I feel very inferior now. Cordelia and Edward, hello and welcome. Hello. Um, Cordelia, why don't I start with you? Um, just tell us a little bit more about uh, capital claims and, uh, and why you might wish to adjourn them in the first place. Uh, firstly, Tara, thank you for that kind introduction. Um, it is very helpful indeed to be discussing a topic which perhaps is, as you say, overlooked and certainly was an unfamiliar one to me until a couple of years ago. Uh, the courts favouring finality seems to be a very strong theme in the case law. And indeed, it is rare for a party's capital claims to be adjourned because obviously it prevents finality in litigation. Uh, but it should be uh, one that is used when it is the only solution to do justice to the parties. And I think it's an important one to have in mind in those niche circumstances where it's relevant. The, so it might be, what kind of niche circumstances are you talking about? Well, I think it's helpful to first remind ourselves uh, of the of the clean break provision, um, 25A, before I say in which case the circumstances don't apply, uh, which is that we all seem to regard 25A um, as a golden rule, and of course it is, but it's one that merits careful reading of the exact wording. Because, of course, 25A invites the court to consider the making mm. of a clean break order uh, rather than it being a blanket rule. There is, of course, a once and for all approach to cases where it's possible. But as, as you say, there are those uh, niche cases where that isn't actually the fair outcome. Uh, my experience of an adjourned capital claim is in the context of a serial non-disclosure. I had a case a couple of years ago involving a prominent Middle Eastern businessman who my client, the wife, knew to have significant global assets, but he only provided pretty sparse information in his form A, and he thereafter disengaged with the proceedings. So we had a situation that after a long marriage, husband had failed to provide proper disclosure for significant capital assets including property in Dubai, Baghdad um, and a successful business and a couple of hundred thousand in US bank accounts. So I asked the court to transfer all the English properties to wife and to adjourn her lump sum claims indefinitely to a way to clear a picture of husband's capital interests abroad. That can't be the only case where there's uh, that set of circumstances and where that's the proper outcome. Other examples from case law 
seem to be falling into two categories. One, where there's an expectation of a certain inheritance. So for example, um, MT and MT, 1992 decision, where there was uh, an inheritance that, he, that the husband in that case could not be excluded from receiving, but he had no assets at that time. And so the court adjourned wife's capital application until the death of her father-in-law. Um, or the second situation is an expectation of a bonus or gratuity. And I know that uh, Ed has particular experience in cases involving army gratuities, for example, the situation that was in Morris. Uh, and that's an interesting topic uh, by itself that could also be uh, used for, as I said, bonuses as an expectation of a specific sum arriving ideally at a specific time because you're going to have more, more luck, and we'll come on to the practicalities in a moment, but you're going to have more luck where it's a certainty of a set sum at a set time. Uh, is going to be a, a clearer set of facts to be successful with this sort of application rather than a vague generality at some point in the future. I, I was just about to ask, how clear an expectation uh, does one have to have before, before it merits a, an adjourned capital claim? I think it's worth um, hearing first from Ed about some of the uh, more historic Kessler on this point, because in my view, the test seems to have softened somewhat, leading us up to the most recent uh, leading decision, AWNAH 2020 decision. So I think, I think I'll, I'll park that if I may, because I think it's interesting to look at in the historical perspective of how that test perhaps has softened over the years. Well, well let's, let's turn to Edward now then. Um, if I may. Um, Ed Edward, where does the court's power to adjourn claims originate from? Is it statute or is it case law? Well, that's a good question. I, I think what we've lost sight of a bit in recent years is that you are not obliged, of course, to bring an application for financial provision at all. Uh, and of course, uh, the statistics are something like 90% of divorces never have such an application. And if you do, I think there's a temptation to tick every box on Form A, but you're not required to do that either. You can target your claims. And I suspect with um, costs, orders and provisions creeping now towards winner takes all, there'll be more emphasis on looking at what people did tick on, on Form A. Mm. In, one of the things we've also lost sight of is... Um, well, I, I'm, I'm, you may be sound really old because you, you said I appeared in Hardy and Hardy, which is true, but not the 1981 original yeah. hearing in front of Ormrod. I'm not that old. But yeah. I, I appeared for um, Mrs. Hardy when it came back to court. So in many ways, I saw the, 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 the reality of an adjourned lump sum um, about 12 years later. But that, that case was a separation case. And we seem to have lost sight of the fact that... Um, you can make an application in a separation petition, which is not the same as an application under Section 23. It's a separate form of provision. And uh, the, the Hardy um, is helpful, actually, because Ormrod makes it perfectly clear yeah. that you're not required to bring a Section 23 application just because you bring one under Section 10. And by the same, the same uh, uh, rule, I, I think, we all probably need to think in future when we're issuing Form A, whether we start a lump sum at all, mm. because there's no, there's no reason why you need to do that. In fact, as you've seen from uh, Vincent Wyatt, she didn't, 
well, she may have had an earlier one because they never got to the bottom of whether she'd had an earlier one, but they rather assumed she hadn't had an earlier um, claim. Um, but you could wait. So you could, if you had a, a, a separation um, divorce, just bring an application under Section 10 and wait with your capital claim. Are there risks um, involved, in your view, in, in well, waiting? Yes, of course. Now, there are significant risks involved. I mean, one of the advantages of Hardy and Hardy or some of the most recent cases like, like Robert's case is that you've got the court's approval to delay your application, if you, if you put it that way. Yeah. And so you're not going to run up against trying to prove that had you brought it soon after the marriage, you, you would have in fact have done worse or the husband would have taken a dishonest route. Remember, um, Hardy was about a man who was trying to get away with it. And courts are always happy to make orders where they think the real justice merits it. Could and as helpful, um, Cordelia sent me also a case also with Lord Justice Ormrod involved six months after Hardy called Smith and Smith, where they didn't adjourn the lump sum. And they didn't adjourn it for that reason, which we now would, would obviously um, think was valid, which is that they knew all the assets at the time. So everything that was available was, was on the table. It, it, the difficulty, it was very difficult to unlock those things. Can you remind our listeners um, what the facts of Hardy and Hardy were? And yeah, so, so, yeah, so in Hardy, um, if, you, if you liked horses in the, in the late um, 60s and early 70s, you would have known of Jack Hardy who was very, very famous as a bookmaker. He had his people on every course in, in the country. And he was also a horse race, a horse, uh, racehorse owner and trainer. So he was, a, he was a very, very wealthy man. He lived a very luxurious lifestyle from a mansion in Nottinghamshire. And his son, the Mr. Hardy, the husband in the case, um, worked for him effectively. And they, he and Mrs. Hardy had two daughters. They were married actually for about 15 or 16 years before the marriage broke down. Mm. And when it came to the divorce, he painted himself as on the minimum agricultural wage of about 60 or 70 pounds a week. Very minimal. Uh, yeah. It didn't have any relation to the um, standard of living during the marriage. Yeah. And they, they lived in a cottage, which I, I, from memory, I think it was called Rose Cottage, somewhere on the estate, but owned by, by father. And of course the court didn't like the presentation of the husband that he was a man of straw when they knew that there was an awful lot of straw in the stables. Um, he just needed to <laughs> go out into the fields. So that, 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 that's the background of Hardy. Right. And, and in that case, the, as you say, that the court was very willing to adjourn and then revive the capital claims. Yes, yeah, so, so, so there was a particular, and it's very important, I think, to procedure to, to note this, that. Yeah. When the wife issued her application, she, she didn't issue under section 23. She had a bright solicitor, obviously bright, because he then employed me 12 years later. <laughs> but, he, um, but, but, but he issued, because it was a separation case, only under section 10. Right. When they got in front of the registrar, he kind of bullied them and said, come on, let's have all these claims together, go and issue a, an ancillary relief. And so she did, including, of course, capital claims. And when they came back for that hearing, her counsel, then counsel, um, I, I can't remember who her then counsel, I think it was Henry Martineau, who I, I sort of remember, 
But for Mr. Hardy was in fact Alan Ward, who then became, of course, Lord Justice Ward. Right. And uh, and uh, the 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 view that was taken then was that he'd been so dishonest. But it was also unfair on Mrs. Hardy because she hadn't intended to bring her capital claims. She had intended to bring only claims under Section 10 of the Act. Uh, and what was the ex... I mean, obviously, he, he was from a wealthy family uh, and uh, had a very uh, wealthy father. But in terms of what the expectations of wealth actually were, was it going to be an immediate... Uh, passing down of of money or what what were you sort of what were you relying on uh that, that would come well, to him and then well I, 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 for the revival yeah i mean i i got the papers that had been around in 81 as far as they were in about 93 and the first question we had was do we apply now is this the right moment timings important. Because, yeah because, because that's yeah, quite a very a difficult decision point. to make and what what everyone expected was that Jack Hardy would leave his very considerable wealth to his children or his wife. I think he had another son and that the husband would become wealthy at some point. And that would be uh, then a truer position, particularly as he was working for his father. Yeah. He'd been working elsewhere. I suspect the lump sum might not have happened, but he was clearly being groomed for um, running the business. In fact, he, he, as, as I recall, and I have to say my, I couldn't find any papers going back to 1993 or four. Um, by the time we went back, Jack Hardy died and uh, Mr. Hardy's mother had just died when we applied and we decided it was the only potential moment. Yeah. He had inherited the estate of his mother and she, she inherited the estate of father. It wasn't as much because uh, after Jack Hardy died, the, the, the pot wasn't being filled up with income anymore. No. And so they'd basically been living off capital. But, but, it, but it allowed us to settle. Or, in fact, we had a, we had a hearing, but it, the, there was enough money that the wife's claims could finally be dealt with. And how, how many years later was this then? About uh, 11 or 12 years. Yeah. It was in the early 90s. And we um, came up in front of Mr Justice Coleridge, then fairly new appointment uh, at that stage. And um, effectively, my client had been living in the cottage then with the children for well over 20 years. And she was given quite a lot more income. And uh, then uh, the house was kept in trust so that part of it went to her and part of it went back to the estate. And was there any doubt in your mind that you'd be able to revive th those cap capital claims? Or was it just a doubt that you'd find anything at the end of the... Well, of course, you've, you've got no right of... of um, you've got no right of, of disclosure, pre-action disclosure. Right. And you have to remember that until about um, 92, 93, the whole system was not with Forms E and it wasn't formulated like that. It was dealt with on uh, very sketchy affidavits in which you disclosed what you felt like disclosing and um, there were very thin powers of disclosure. Um, so, so there was no way of knowing what he'd received other than looking at the probate grant for his mother, which you could have a look at. So it, I'm afraid it's a shot in the dark. Which was obviously successful in your case. It was successful. And Mr Hardy, I think it had more children than a second wife. So that's another feature you've got to take into account. And 
in terms, I mean, we all know Hardy and Hardy is the leading case. And I know Cordelia is going to speak in a moment about some more recent cases, which are going to be re relevant to our listeners. But Edward, are there any other cases uh, that, that, that you think are of note that need to be mentioned? Well, I think what, what's difficult to understand is that today's world has changed so immeasurably from the days of the, of the 90s, um, because up until the change by pension sharing coming in, in the mid-1990s, any, anything that was um, going to be received by a party years hence was always argued as not foreseeable. And of course, the Act still has the word foreseeable in it. And this linked in a lot with pensions cases, because we now get CEVs to tell us what the value of a pension is and notional value, but that's a creation of the mid-90s. When you were doing a case in the early 90s, all you'd be told is that the husband had a pension scheme that would pay him 10 or 12,000 when he retired. And given that he might be only 50 then, it would be said 15 years from retirement, that was really irrelevant. Because nobody, nobody counted the fact that he'd actually earned an enormous amount of it and during the magic was just ignored. I, I, think, I think I'm showing my age now because I can't remember a time when we didn't have CETVs. Well, we, we, we didn't, I'm afraid, before the Work and Pensions Act. Honestly, and, can't uh, even imagine it. <laughs> and so they were gro grossly, grossly unfair. You would discover you could share the matrimonial home uh, and you might get some maintenance. Now, the flip side of this was that most periodical payments orders were for life. And so it was often said, well, oh, then so because it's for life, there'll be a claim made after the husband gets his retirement. But it, but, it, but it didn't help in real terms, because of course, if the wife remarried, she was instantly not going to get any PPs, or if the husband died, went with him, et cetera, et cetera. So, so the, whole, the whole world has changed now. And... Uh um, adjourning capital claims uh, uh, is something that Pump Court has got quite a lot of experience of, haven't they? Why, why is that? Well, that's because when um, uh, the Chambers moved to Hampshire in the mid-80s, uh, a lot of members worked in Hampshire, but, but uh, Winchester was found as a, as a base in the mid-80s. And so our work in Hampshire mushroomed a lot from that moment. And if you look at most of these old cases about foreseeability, they arise out of Army and Navy Act pension cases, mm. a lot of which revolve around Portsmouth. Mm. So there was a very rich seam of matrimonial finance grown on the back of Navy pensions cases in, in the 90s. And members of Pump Court appeared in, in a lot of those cases, which set out then that, uh, for example, an Army pension or a Navy pension uh, more than six or seven years, eight years, was often thought to be too far ahead for the court to take any interest in at all. It wasn't foreseeable, to be ignored. Um, no matter and, how long the marriage? No matter how long the marriage. And of course, the paradox of that was the longer the marriage, the bigger the pension was likely to be. And you would have thought that would make a difference, but it didn't. So, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was enormously unfair. And it was pretty obvious at the time it was enormously unfair. And and thus, thus the pressure built to, to get pension sharing. Yeah. And, but, but as Cordelia's going to tell us, there, there are lots of recent cases, aren't there, dealing with adjournment of 
capital claims. What, what, what are the most relevant ones for us to know about? There's absolutely been a run of recent case law. Uh, but first, I just want to say it's helpful to hear from Ed about the facts of Hardy because it fits so squarely in with what I think is such an obvious prominent feature of those who are successful in these cases. It's exactly like Ed said, it's poor conduct. There's such an obvious theme of husbands who are very unsympathetic characters behaving really terribly, coupled with court lacking material to draw inferences as to hidden assets or the ability to make direct orders against identified assets. Uh, plus, of course, like the Rose Cottage situation, wives who have real needs. Yeah. So that seems to be the winning formula, as it were, when you look at both the historic and the modern case law something in the court's armoury to try and uh, prevent unfairness. Indeed. I think, as already said, it just justice prevailing over finality, really, is the, is the bottom line of it. But uh, the, the recent cases um, are interesting because it seems that most of the pre-2018 cases put a very strong emphasis, as I said at the beginning, real possibility of capital becoming available in the near future from a specific source. So real possibility, near future, specific source. Mm. Whereas I think reading the 2019 and 2020 decisions, that test seems to have softened a little, although not explicitly, but it has seemed to soften in practice. And I just want to rattle through some of the cases which might be helpful for our listeners. Yeah. Uh, one is uh, the Chinese Thai case, Quan and Bray, 2019 decision. So coming back after it had been in the Court of Appeal. Again, fitting in with the theme I've said, very poor conduct by husband, um, including some shocking quotations which are in the uh, judgment, which makes it a very good read, <laughs> yeah. uh, indeed. Uh, and um, it's Justice Mostyn finding that it was foreseeable that at some stage in the future, a husband will have accumulated sufficient sums to make uh, a proper capital settlement on the wife. And it's quite extraordinary that in that case, there was an adjournment of wife's capital claims without limitation of time. And we'll come on to timings in a moment. Yeah. I know that was a topic that you thought might be helpful to talk about because uh, seven years in terms of the length of the adjournment had twice been said to be far too long. But here well, it was, the Chinese tiger man having an in indefinite adjournment. That's quite extraordinary. And particularly when you look at um, delay cases. Now, I know there's no statutory limitation period and that was made very clear in Vince and Wyatt, but... Um, you know, the, the six and seven year sort of limit it, it is something that the courts tend to have an eye to, even if it's not sort of set in stone. So to adjourn claims indefinitely, he must have t formed an extremely dim view. Indeed. And um, I must say it, it drew a helpful parallel, although my case uh, was heard before Quan and Bray had been reported, yeah. um, my case 2018. Uh, it, it, I had the same situation. I had an adjournment with an indefinite um, length of time um, and that was particularly helpful. But the facts are quite similar. It was a, a brazen non-discloser who had had very poor conduct. So it, that set of facts definitely helps the court turn a blind eye to guidance on what might be appropriate time limit for adjournment. Um, the second case I want to talk about was Joy and Joy. Uh, same litigants as uh, the Joy decision in 2015, but this was the 2019 decision. Um, and it, uh, in 2017, the matter had come before Ms Justice Singer, who had uh, passed away before giving judgment. 
but it was reheard from Mr Justice Cohen in 2019, which is this decision. Uh, it had been uh, kicked, uh, the can had been kicked again down the road for another three years in 2017, but there was a limit put on it that wife's claims had been dismissed if she didn't make a claim by 2022. And of course, as we are in 2020 at the moment, it remains to be seen whether or not wife will make claim and what uh, husband's evidence will yield. But the reason I particularly wanted to mention this one is I think it's uh, a practical point to help you preempt a problem of when to revive. Because when to revive is something that I hope we're going to have some wisdom from Ed on in a moment. But this case, Miss Justice Cohen specifically made an order for disclosure to permit wife to assess whether or not she had enough material to revive the claim. Mm. So I thought that was an interesting point that you could use to make the, when you're making the application to indefinitely adjourn or to adjourn with the time limit, to also make an application um, for a specific order for disclosure. Yeah, that's you. So it's less of a punt in the future. No, that's- Uh, Give yourself more information if, if you can. Yeah, that's very helpful. Thank you. The other two cases, uh, there's some more recent decisions. Uh, One's Haskell and Haskell 2019 uh, decision. Uh, In that, it was a similar set of facts in terms of where the court sympathies lay. Uh, Husband, very astute businessman, uh, no cash assets, but he was in the process of changing direction with his business activities. Uh, There were three children, one of whom was severely disabled, needing round-the-clock care. So despite the fact that husband had no cash assets, uh, the court did find that his net worth would be um, inappropriate to exclude the trust interests he had, which were some 50 million. Mm. And obviously it was completely unrealistic to simply ignore some of that magnitude in a trust. So uh, the, the court decided that despite the fact that the intellectually pure way to approach a settlement would have been deferring wife's capital claims. Um, In this situation, neither party had actually argued for that approach. And uh, an award was done as a lump sum instalment in two years' time instead. I know Ed's already touched on whether or not that's actually um, a risky um, application to make, because, of course, you don't want... You don't want a situation to be setting yourself up for bigger problems later down the line. Mm. But that, that was the outcome for Bridge and Haskell. And then the most recent uh, one is AW and AH, 2020 decision of uh, Lady Justice Roberts, Mr Justice Roberts, pardon me, um, referring uh, to Haskell, Quan and Joy, but applying, I think, a subtly different wording in the test. She said there was a reasonable probability that he, husband, may have access to this wealth in the near future a reasonable probability that he may ever so subtly different to real possibility in the near future mm. so I, I think it was not again i'm saying it's a softening, the, yeah. softening the, the test in that direction uh, again a case where there'd be a very high standard of living during the marriage um, and there was a huge non-disclosure and a wife sought a, a either a two million pound lump sum or an adjournment of her claim because husband had been made bankrupt um, years earlier. Um, again, court very critical of husband's uh, conduct in the case and his non-disclosure. And uh, it was it was held by Lady Justice Roberts that despite the, the imperative to achieve a clean break, 
in this case it wasn't possible uh, because a fair outcome would not be had if uh, wife's uh, if wife's lump sum claims were heard at that time uh, Lady Justice Roberts saying, I'm as confident as I can be that husband will do whatever he can to re-establish his financial base, although I have no expectation that he will secure in future a return to the scale of wealth he had previously enjoyed. And again, I think that's interesting where you compare it to the earlier cases where there is this time linked, not just probability, but significant probability. Um, and this case doesn't seem to have that at all. Explicitly in judgment, doesn't have that. There's there's a expectation that he will he will regain his previous financial wealth, but the court explicitly saying not at the same scale he had previously. So it seems there's a softening yeah. certainly with, when one compares it to the Hardy background. And I was just thinking about the fact that obviously all of the cases that um, you've looked at are big money cases. I wonder whether, um, particularly on the, in the circumstances where you have a uh, non-discloser, uh, but the scale of the wealth we're looking at is, is much less, whether actually you don't make the decision to adjourn capital claims, but try and face it by add back or inference, adverse inferences. Yes, I suppose, I suppose a greater prob probability in the big money cases is that you have got capital to be seeking a lump sum yeah. order uh, rather than a property adjustment order. Even, even in very low asset cases, you might not even have a owned property. So I think that's one practical reason why a lot of the cases where this uh, sort of technique is used are the big money cases yeah. but I see no reason in principle why it couldn't be usefully used for um, for a, a, a mid mid asset case well well the um, of course the um, authorities that come out of the pension the army and navy pension cases were, were not big money cases mm. and in fact the reason for the um, adjournment was to allow nearly always a husband to retire from the army or navy so to get the resettlement grant to provide a source of capital that wasn't otherwise going to be available. Well, those are the cases, aren't they, when you're waiting for a defined event in the future. Yes. But from what I understood of Cordelia's case, where she successfully employed it, actually the issue wasn't that he was going to be getting money in the future. Cordelia assumed that he had the money. It was, it was just that she'd have a better grasp on it, mm. if you like, in the future. Um, perhaps when I don't know assets moved around or whatever, but but the money was still there, and it, I was just interested to, to. Well, I think I think what the court's doing then is saying if here is a husband who's trying to time his ancillary relief to now because it's convenient to him, yes. justice says actually we're not going to let him get away with that. We will time it to a time determined by the wife. Yes. And speaking of timing, uh, Cordelia touched on this. How, how long can you, Cordelia, adjourn capital claims for? You said indefinitely, but in, in the normal run of things, what, what could you expect? Well, that's quite a difficult question to answer because there is no normal, it seems to me. I'm sure um, Ed will let me know if he disagrees. But certainly with the case law, as Ed said, you start off in the 70s and 80s, even so, so long as um, 
some of them in the early 90s, having two or three years as being seemingly the limit. You have the Court of Appeal um, saying that seven years is far too long. That's in mm-hmm. 1988, case of Ransom. But then you have more recently uh, the the Quan decision, the Chinese Tiger decision, I've already told you, no limitation of time. Mm. Um, and you have this year, um, AW and AH, uh, saying seven years um, when wife turns 70, but pinned to when she turns 70, rather than mm. seven years being any mag- having any magic about it. So mm. um, I think there's an interesting link also uh, to make with def- uh, deferring other orders. For example, we're all very familiar with measures uh, deferring the sale of the family home. But I think, I think the same principle can be said. With a measure, you link it to a, to a point in time, a date, if you can, e.g. summer 2020, when the children finish secondary school, for example. Mm. Um, and no one's, as, as, as words as you described this before, no squeamish about that sort of adjournment. Well, uh, I, guess, I guess the difference is that when, you're adjour- when it's a trigger clause on a sale of a property, you've got a defined property. There's no dispute about what you're dealing with. There are no issues of evidence uh, and pre- the prejudice that is brought about automatically by a long delay in things um, compared to, you know, a journey, a capital claim where when you look to revive it, you've got to get all the evidence. You've got to rely on as Ed said in his case of Hardy, paperwork from 12 years ago and what might be left of it. Um, it's a slightly different thing, although I understand, I, I do understand the point on that. I think we're going to have to be really prepared for these because yeah. I can see that um, COVID cases, we are going to have people whose businesses have been really badly affected. And as we look forward and hope the world is going to emerge back into the into the daylight we're going to have wives and husbands who want to make claims but they they don't want to make claims for certain parts of the assets because they Mm. will see a revival over the next um two to three years and we will see other litigants who say let's get it on now my business isn't worth very much it was worth a lot of money before and so i suspect this is going to be something we're going to have to think about a lot, um, particularly the timing of, of issuing applications. And um, um, practically speaking, Edward, what, what tips do you have for practitioners who are either um, looking to uh, represent a client and adjourn uh, their capital claims or representing a client and reviving those well, I always think that one of the most important discussions you have during a, a conference before you start is, you know, is it in our interest to, to issue a, a claim now? Is, is this a good moment for us? Mm. And uh, we now know that a bit like uh, civil claims changing after the implementation of the Civil Procedure Act, once you've pressed the button to start a matrimonial finance claim, the, the, the court will set out its timetable, the court will, will move you along. So slowing up a case is much more difficult than not starting it in the first place. So I think we need to think about that really carefully mm. and then target it. And if, if for example, um, it's not the moment to bring um, a lump sum claim or a property adjustment claim, that might be the moment not to tick those boxes. And Hardy is good authority that you're not required to because the act and you asked this very outset about, you know, where does this power come from? Well, the power in section 23 is that you can 
issue can bring a, a claim uh, on a decree or at any time thereafter. And any time means any time. There is no limitation period. In uh, Hill and Hill, it was 29 years. Mm. In Vincent Wyatt, it was uh, whatever, 20 years. 20 years. 20 so, years. So, so, so that's what we've got to think about very carefully. And then maybe just bring PPs a claim. If, that, if that's all you need immediately, mm. maybe bring a PPs claim. Maybe it isn't the moment to sell the property. Maybe you want to um, stay in the property. Maybe you want to rent. Uh, you want to deal with things in other ways. Ima imagine a family now who have a very substantial property portfolio and it's not the moment to sell it in the middle of a pandemic. Um, you, would be, you would be taking all that into account, I think. So I, I think you've got to think about these things very carefully before you start an application. Um, if, you've got, if you've had one deferred, then um, that, that's going to bring its own uh, questions. But in fact, the answer is, well, why was it deferred in the first place? So you've then got to try and work out the moment to strike again. And what's changed. And j just in terms of actually once you've brought, you know, let's say you, you bring um, part of your claim. So you, you, you're trying to deal with the property adjustment, but you then want to adjourn the capital claims. Um, do you do you just make that claim on uh, in the form E or well, I, I see I, I think if you really thought there was no advantage to a lump sum claim don't bring it remember you can only have one order with lump sums in it and so if it doesn't suit you don't bring it and you 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 can't be coerced according to Hardy um, about it you can decide that's your choice so the, and the power you, you asked earlier about adjourning seems to me just to arise from the fact that a judge faced with an application has mm. uh, a number of options available to uh, them. Either you make an order uh, or you make an interim order, I suppose, mm. or you dismiss it or you defer it. You, you have all those options available to you as a judge. I don't think you need to make a separate application. No. And I think that you are completely within your rights to say, I didn't know that I wanted to adjourn my lump sum claims until I got all the disclosure. But now I've seen it. <laughs> if you get any. <laughs> uh, I mean, Cordelia could never have known in her Iraqi case that she was going to end up in a situation where deferring capital claims was the right way forward. Mm. Not, not until. The, the disclosure had happened and shown that it was um, so lacking that the, the sensible way was to, to, to adjourn. And Cordelia, in that case, out of interest, did you have an FDR? We were listed for FDR, but husband didn't turn up. So uh, we, we then, we listed it for a separate final hearing. Mm. And it was, uh, as I said, it was only latterly between the non-disclosure after the FDA onwards uh, that it became very obvious that there was just no, no basis on which we would be successful with pinning uh, a lump sum order if we'd, if we'd made the application then. So we made, very, we made very clear in our Section 25 statement that it was going to be an adjourned uh, yes. application that we sought. Yeah. And of course, I made very clear in my position statement for the final hearing that that was what we sought. I stuffed it full of the authorities, including Hardy. Uh, so I think that 
you're, you're quite right. You, you don't need a separate freestanding application, but I do think it's sensible to make it clear at the first available opportunity to you. And that might be right at the beginning, as Ed says, when you're preparing the Form A, or it might be later on when you're faced with non-disclosure or uh, disclosure that doesn't, doesn't actually tie you to any successful outcome because it's incomplete. Yeah, and of course the new rules about um, making open proposals earlier help you in a way set out your case. Yes, absolutely. Well, Cordelia and Edward, thank you so much for your time today. That's been really informative and I, for one, have learned an awful lot. So thank you both of you. You're thank welcome. You. Thank, you for, thank you for both of your wisdom on the subject as well. It's been very useful. Thank and you. For, to our listeners, please tune in to listen to our next podcast, where I'm going to be joined by Jack Rundell um, and um, a, an expert talking about farming cases, which, which is set to be very interesting. As ever, if anyone has any ideas about further topic areas, Mark Ablett and I would love to hear from you. And you can find our emails on the Pump Court website www.pumpcourtchambers.com Episodes are available to download or stream on iTunes, Spotify, Google and the Chambers website. Mm -hmm.